Would you take your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 16? This morning, we will continue in our series, Making Much of Jesus, Joining God's Unstoppable Mission for the Church. And as we park in Matthew chapter 16 this morning, verses 13 through 21, we want to hear from the words of Jesus himself how each and every one of us have been called to do exactly what this sermon series is entitled. We are being called to join God in his unstoppable mission to build his church. And so let us hear God's word this morning from Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That is God's word. May he add his blessing to his reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When our boys were young, they went through a stretch of their childhood where it seemed like they always had a pair of superhero pajamas. Um, I can vividly remember both Payson and Silas in their Batman and Superman uh, uh, pajamas. And I remember one particular morning, Silas wakes up in his Superman pajamas. And one of the features of this particular set of pajamas was that they had a detachable Velcro cape. And so every morning they would wake up and they would ask for their cape. And so Silas followed form. He comes up to me. I'm in my chair. I'm, I'm reading. I'm, I'm drinking my coffee. And he goes, Daddy, where's my cape? And so I take his cape and I place it on his shoulders. And no sooner do I place the cape on his shoulders, a transformation takes place. He's no longer groggy, sleepy Silas. He's now Superman. And so he runs across the living room and he does something he'd never done acting out in his pajamas before. He he jumps up on the fireplace hearth, pulls back his fist, and punches the brick wall. You know what he found out real quick? He wasn't the little man of steel. (laughs) He was really just Silas. You say, why in the world would Silas punch the brick wall? I'll tell you why. He thought he was Superman. Isn't it true that we do what we do because we believe we are who we are? Our identity drives our activity. 
We do what we do because we believe we are who we are. We truly do believe and behave in accordance with our understanding of our identity. We do what we do because we believe we are who we are. And the opposite is also true, church. We often fail to do what we should do because we forget or we neglect who we truly are. People really do go through what's called an identity crisis. There is a medical condition that that can be brought on through brain trauma called amnesia. Sometimes people forget who they are. As this relates to the subject I want to press into today from the Gospel of Matthew, I want to admit that even though this text is is most concerned with accurately bringing our attention to the identity of Jesus, what we also see here is Jesus' concern that we understand our identity as well. Jesus wants us to know who he is, but Jesus also wants us to know who we are. And what I want us to see, how this relates to Redeemer, especially Redeemer as a church-planting church in the Bay Area, I want you to see how Jesus identifies you in relationship to his church's mission. Because as you see who you are in relationship to the mission, the idea is you will then begin to live out your part, out your identity in the mission. Your understanding of your identity in our church planting endeavors will drive your activity and your participation in our church planting endeavors. And I don't want any of us, individually or Redeemer Church of Fremont collectively, to suffer from what I would call a missional identity crisis. I don't want you to forget or to neglect your missional identity in Redeemer's church planting church vision. And so here's what I want to show you from the text this morning. I want to show you, I want you to see how Jesus sees you. I want you to see how Jesus sees Redeemer Church. And what Jesus sees in Redeemer Church is not unique to Redeemer Church. What Jesus sees in Redeemer Church is true of all of his churches globally and how they fit into his great plan for every people, tribe, tongue, and nation to one day be gathered around the throne of Christ, declaring worthy is the lamb who was slain. So how does Jesus see us, Redeemer Church? He sees us as the means through which he's building his church. That's part of our identity through the eyes of Jesus. And this is the big idea I want us to focus in on this morning. We are Christ's means to accomplish his unstoppable plan to build his church. In Matthew 16, verses 13 through 21, we come face to face with Jesus telling us who we are and and how that identity ought to shape our activity as disciples on mission together. It doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus for five minutes, five weeks, or 50 years. You play a part in God's great plan to build his church. 
Unfortunately, this text that we're in this morning is often a hangout for theological debate over a rock and a set of keys, and that'll make sense in a few moments. But, but, but what's also here is a robust expression of Christ's unstoppable plan to take ordinary men and women like you and me and use us to do extraordinary things on his mission with the gospel. In fact, I hope that you will see in this text, from the text, embedded in the details in the truths of this text, that we are truly Christ's means to accomplish his unstoppable plan to build his church. So as that is the setup, I, I want to show you how this truth comes out of the text, but I, I feel like I need to give a bit of an overview of the text itself. And let me just do this briefly so you understand the setting of what I just read. Jesus and the 12 disciples are in Gentile territory, a city called Caesarea Philippi. Interestingly, this was a city that was named after Caesar Augustus. And there was even this ornate marble temple that was built there in honor of King Herod. It was a temple that stood to, to say, here's what Herod built. He built this city. Interestingly enough, Jesus is going to give a lesson about what he is building and how that building cannot be stopped in a city that bragged about the building of a man. You've probably never seen this temple. You've probably never heard of this temple. You probably only passively are acquainted with Caesar Augustus. But you are very well aware of what Jesus is building because you are a part of it right now, 2,000 years later. So here they are in Caesarea Philippi, and we're at this moment where they're experiencing a, a rare break in the ministry activity of Christ's incarnation. Jesus isn't teaching. He isn't proclaiming. He isn't healing. They're just resting for a moment, and no one's coming after him for help. And so Jesus takes this moment of unprecedented rest to instruct his disciples on something significant about the ministry that must continue after his death and resurrection. This is also a moment in Matthew's gospel, if you're familiar with the reading of the entire gospel. This, this section functions as a bit of a literary break in Matthew's gospel because starting in verse 21, of chapter 16, the pace picks up drastically in this gospel as Jesus is on this very intentional march towards Jerusalem where he will willingly give himself over to betrayal, denial, crucifixion, and resurrection. And so this is marked by the phrase of verse 21, from that time. So after this break, from that time, Jesus begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must die on the cross, and he will rise from the dead on the third day. So this is a transition text in Matthew's gospel. Now concerning this transition, theologian T.H. Robertson notes, here we reach the crises, the turning point in the ministry of Jesus. He knew what lay before him. He knew because he planned the future with his own death in Jerusalem. He had, therefore, to secure some representatives who he could leave behind to carry on his work. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to die on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he will rise from the dead. Then he will ascend into heaven where he is at this very moment, awaiting the day when he returns to judge the living and the dead and make all things new. But here's what Jesus is concerned about in this text. 
in between the time of his ascension and his return, there's still work to be done on earth. And in this text, he's preparing his disciples to be the means through which that work is done. And so what I believe this means is that here at this turning point in verses 16 through 21, we have Jesus getting his disciples ready to continue the work that he began during his incarnation, to continue the work of building his church and advancing his gospel and and seeing broken things healed and restored and renewed in the name of the triune God. And he's not only preparing the 12 disciples, but others who will be led by them and go with them as the whole church at the end of this gospel will be commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So we need to see that the way Jesus is getting his disciples prepared to participate in the Great Commission is to extend the teaching that we're receiving right here in chapter 16 before the Great Commission is ever extended. So so with that as the background to the text, I believe this sets up the truth we want to dive into this morning. And that is this, we are the means through which Jesus builds his church. And so there are many ways that we can approach this as we look at the text this morning, but I I want to do it by asking a question. What kind of people does Jesus use to build his church? We are the means through which Jesus builds his church, but who are the we? What kind of people does Jesus use as the means to build his church? church. I believe they're identified in four ways in Matthew's gospel. And let me give you all four of them up front, and then we'll work through them one by one. What kind of people does Jesus use to build his church? First, people who are gripped by the gospel. Second, people who believe God uses people like us. Third, people who believe God works through our work. And then finally, people who believe God's mission can't be stopped. First, people who are gripped by the gospel. In verse 13, Jesus takes this providential break in the action to ask the 12 a vital question. Who do people say that I am? And the answers are are all over the the all-star prophet map. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, someone really important. Who are people saying Jesus is? They're saying he's someone really important, a prophet, someone who speaks on behalf of God. Prophets were vitally important people who spoke with authority on behalf of God. So that's who people are saying that Jesus is. Now, Jesus asked the more important question in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? Let me just do a little aside here before we go into the answer that the disciples provide, that is the most important question for everyone in this room. Who do you say that Jesus is? How do you identify Jesus? How you identify Jesus, what you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. It is the difference between life and death heaven and hell. It's important to know what your parents 
say about Jesus if you are a child. It's important to know what your church pastors say about Jesus if you are a part of this local church. It's important to know what your closest friends believe about Jesus, and it's important to know how they would answer that question. But but for you personally, no more significant question needs to be answered for you than this. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's see if your answer connects with the apostles' answer. But who do you say that I am? It's like Jesus is saying, all right, you've told me how others identify me, but here's what's most important. How do you identify me? Jesus says to the disciples. The word you is in the plural, so the question is being directed to all of them. And as usual, Peter volunteers to answer on everyone else's behalf. And so in verse 16, Peter elects to answer on behalf of them all. He's that guy. Peter's that guy. You know people like Peter. I know people like Peter. I look in the mirror at him every day. (laughs) Here's what Peter says. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, if this were a game show, you would have had a bell in the background going, ding, 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 correct. Because Peter does give the correct answer. In other words, the crowds are partially right. Jesus is important. Jesus is a vital, plays a vital part in the history of God's people. But Peter says, we believe you are the most important. You're not just a prophet. You are supremely important. You are the Messiah, God's divine son. This single sentence, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, is often referred to in theological circles as the great confession. It is the great confession of Matthew 16 that ultimately leads to the great commission of Matthew 28, because this is what we have to declare. What we have been given to declare is the good news about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish and who he is and what he came to do is all compacted in that one single sentence. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And and in this great confession, Peter is saying on behalf of the 12 disciples, we believe first that you are the Christ. Christos in the New Testament, which is the Messiah, the Mashiach of the Old Covenant. The Messiah is the promised one, the anointed one. You see, it's important to know, I don't mean this is an insult if you are a newer Christian or you're, you're newer to the Bible. You understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Like, I am Ian McConnell. It's not the way it works with Jesus Christ. Christ is a title, a sacred title, the most important title, the most anticipated title in all of the Old Testament. This Messiah, this promised one, this anointed one would serve a a threefold ministry on behalf of God's people. He would be the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Now, there were many prophets, and and they spoke on behalf of God. There were many priests, and they cared for God's people on behalf of God. And there were many kings who who ruled and, and legislated and governed on behalf of God. But there was this anticipation, there was this promise that one day there would be a perfect prophet who would speak the very words of God, that there would be a perfect priest who would care on behalf of God as God, and that there would be a perfect king who would rule God's people in righteousness and peace forever. 
And so Peter's saying, we believe you're that guy. We believe that you are the Messiah. We believe that you are the perfect prophet, priest, and king who's come to rescue, rule, and restore God's people now and forever. We believe that you are the Christ. But they also said that we believe that you are the son of the living God. Now, there's much packed into this title, the son of the living God. But here's what's most important to note for our purposes this morning. They recognize that Jesus was not just a good man. They fully recognized and experienced that Jesus was not just a good teacher or another one of the prophets, priests, or kings. They recognized that Jesus, he was the divine son of God, not just an ordinary man, but the God-man. And so you put all of this together. And my brothers and sisters, you have a clear confession of the gospel. The good news that Jesus, the God-man, was sent by the Father, anointed by by the Holy Spirit to rescue, rule, and restore sinners as the perfect prophet, priest, and king, who would accomplish all of this through the significant acts of his life, death, and resurrection. That's the great confession. Who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish for his people. So Leon Morris notes in his commentary on the book of Matthew, it may not be easy to understand precisely what Peter thought the anointed one would be and do, even with his insight that he was God's son, but he was certainly giving voice to an exalted view of Jesus. He could not have ascribed a higher place to him. What's the point? The bottom line is that these disciples were gripped by the good news of who Jesus was, what he was sent to do, and that there was no one, absolutely no one more important than him. Jesus was the highest. Jesus was the greatest. There is no one who ever walked the face of God's earth more important, more glorious, more magnificent than Jesus. They were gripped by Christ. Are you? Are you gripped by Jesus like that? Are you gripped by the good news that that Jesus is who he is and was sent to do what he was sent to do and that there is absolutely no one, absolutely no one like Jesus? Jesus lived the life we could not live. He died the death we deserve to die. He was raised from the dead so that all who turn from their sins and trust in him are forgiven all their sin, are covered from all their shame, and are delivered from all their guilt, and are are made God's blessed sons and daughters forever, and are promised not only to have the presence of God with them on this earth, but are promised to live in the presence of God forever. Is that not the best news ever? Nothing we do to earn it. Nothing we do to deserve it. But Jesus was freely giving because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him 
will not perish, but have everlasting life. We're about to see, and and you probably already know because you've read the rest of your Bible, how God uses these individuals that Jesus is addressing in this text and how Jesus uses these individuals who influenced the entire church to literally turn the world upside down in Jesus' name. What, what motivated them to, to participate in this mission? What drove them to give their lives for this cause? What moved them to give their time and their talents and to make great sacrifices for the sake of the church? What, what moved them? What gripped them? What motivated them? It can be, it can be described in one word. Jesus, they were gripped by Jesus. Oh, if God is going to use us as the means through which he builds his church, he's going to use men and women, ordinary men and women like you and like me, who who begin this fundamental place, this fundamental belief, this fundamental confession. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And there's absolutely no one, no one like Jesus. What kind of people does Jesus use to build his church? First, people who are gripped by the gospel. Second, people who believe God uses people like us. Notice Jesus' response to Peter's confession in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Notice that Jesus responds to Peter's confession of Christ's identity with a declaration of Peter's identity. You've told me who I am. Let me tell you who you are. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. So the age-old question that I alluded to earlier that's been debated for just about forever and thousands of pages have been written in theological volumes to to discuss this. What is the rock? What is the rock upon which Christ will build his church? Is the rock Jesus? Is Jesus speaking in contrast here? Peter, your name is Petros, that means pebble. You are a little pebble and I am Jesus. I'm the God-man, so I'm the boulder. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Is the rock Peter exclusively? You are Peter, and upon you, Peter, I will build my church. And for those of us who come from Roman Catholic backgrounds, we understand that this text has been used to say that Peter was the first pope of the Catholic church, and the, the the, the church is built upon that office. Or is it Peter as a representative of the apostles? Remember, he's, he's speaking on behalf of the 12. And in other places, the apostles are referred to as the foundation. So is Peter, the, is Peter a representative of the apostles? And upon the, the teaching of the apostles, the church will be built? Is the rock Peter's confession? If Jesus is speaking of that proclamation, you are the Christ, is he saying, yes, you've you've confessed it right, and and upon that confession, I will build my church? So what is the answer? Is it Jesus? Is Is it Peter? Is it the apostles? 
as representative leaders of the church? Is it the confession? I believe the answer is yes. I believe the rock upon which Christ will build his church is a confluence of these realities that are all baked into the statement. I believe the rock upon which Christ will build the church is the gospel Peter is confessing as a representative leader of the church. The message and the messengers are yoked. Jesus is going to build his church through leaders like Peter who who lead the church on mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And as churches are led on mission by their appointed gifted leaders, then God uses the church to be the means through which the gospel advances and the church is built. And so isn't this what happens on the other side of the gospels? Fast forward to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 120 people in a room praying. God fills them all with the Holy Spirit. All of of the disciples, including the men and the women, all go out into the streets of Jerusalem and they begin to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Peter stands up after they are sharing the gospel individually and he preaches the gospel. And as a result, 3,000 people are awakened to faith in Christ and the church in Jerusalem is planted. So here's the principle I think we see being revealed through the planting, the beginning of the church in Jerusalem. Jesus calls gifted leaders to lead the church on gospel mission. And when God blesses their efforts, he builds his church. This is how God began to build his church on the day of Pentecost. And that is how I believe God continues to build his church today. God sets apart gifted leaders who are called to lead the church family on mission with the gospel. And when God blesses those efforts by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's building his church. So here's my question. Do you believe this is still the way God works today? If so, it means something significant. It means this, that God has set apart gifted, called, and qualified elders Pastor Bob, Pastor Ricky, Pastor Royce, in this context, to equip you to take the gospel and spread it and disseminate it and proclaim it when we're gathered and when we're scattered. And as God uses our leaders to equip us on this mission, And as we go out and function in this mission, when God blesses it, his church is being built. And that is what we want to see happen all throughout the Bay Area. Local church communities like this being led on mission with a clear articulation of the good news of Jesus. Believing that where we live and where we work and where we get educated and where we play and where we experience life in the bay is all by God's design. We have been sent there. 
And so we come here and we worship the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the power of the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. And we receive the teaching of God's word and we, we become more mature in our understanding of our creed and more mature in our understanding of the gospel. And then we go and we represent Jesus. And as we go in Jesus' name, with Jesus' gospel, empowered by the Spirit Jesus has sent, he will use us to be the means through which he builds his church. My brothers and sisters, I believe we should go home from this Lord's Day gathering more humbled and more amazed that we are Christ's plan for building his church throughout the bay. What kind of people does God use to lead in the mission of the gospel? People who believe that God simply uses ordinary people like us to do extraordinary things in Jesus' name. Third, it's related, but it's nuanced. What kind of people does God use to accomplish his mission to build his church, people who believe God works through our work. Not just people who believe that God wants to use us, but God wants to use us in a particular way. God's design is to work through our work. It's important to believe that God uses people like us, but it's also important to know how God uses us. And I think we're shown this here in the text in verses 17 through 18. The principle I think we see at work here is that God supernaturally works through our natural work. Look at how Jesus explains the reason why Peter truly understands the identity of Christ in verse 17. He says, Blessed are you, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is amazing. This is an amazing truth, not only about how an individual comes to faith in the true identity and significance of Jesus, but it's also an amazing statement about how God works through our work in the mission of making much of Jesus. Think about it. Who was proclaiming the gospel to Peter? Jesus. Jesus himself. Jesus, we, we read earlier in Matthew's gospel, and I'll be teaching from this text in a couple weeks, that Jesus went to every town and every village, teaching in the synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So the ministry rhythm of Jesus was teaching, proclaiming, and healing. And so Jesus is the one who's proclaiming the gospel. Jesus is the one who's healing. Jesus is the one who's showing manifestations of the kingdom to come through his ministry. And so Peter heard the gospel proclaimed from the very mouth of Jesus. Now, who revealed the significance of those words and deeds, causing Peter to believe them? The Father. Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, you didn't believe this simply because you heard it proclaimed from a flesh and blood messenger. The reason why you believe this is because even though you heard it from a flesh and blood messenger, the Father opened your heart to believe it. The Father worked in your heart to embrace it. In other words, Peter didn't come to faith in Christ simply by figuring it out. Oh, he heard the message. Oh, that makes sense. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now the Father 
opened his heart through the words and deeds of Jesus. Now this, my friends, is stepping into the deep end of the Trinitarian pool. The Father worked through the work of Jesus to make his proclamation of the gospel efficacious. It's not, it's, it's astounding. And it's also encouraging. Because obviously Jesus is the best gospel preacher to ever walk the face of this earth. He is the, the, he is the one who, who is most clearly and most profoundly and most accurately has ever articulated the truths of the kingdom of God. But we're not Jesus. And sometimes we find it difficult to, to communicate the gospel. Sometimes we find it hard to, to talk about the true identity and the mission of Jesus. Sometimes we feel like when people ask us a question about our faith, we just kind of, we just fumble our way through sharing the good news of Jesus. But I got good news for you. The people that you're seeking to share the gospel with, their faith is not dependent upon your articulation. Their faith is not ultimately dependent upon how well or how good or how silver-tongued you are at communicating. We share the gospel and then we trust that God will work in hearts and reveal to them the significance of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, God works through our work to bring people into the kingdom of God. So this should be liberating. Yes, we are called to work in Jesus' name. Yes, we are called to share the good news of Jesus through our words and through our deeds. But at the end of the day, the success of the mission is not dependent upon the, the, the expertise of the missionaries. The success of the mission is dependent upon the God who works through our work to accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. Does that make you want to say amen? You don't got to be an amener to get excited about that. God works through our work. It's like David said in Psalm 127. He says this, he goes, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So who builds it? Us or the Lord? The answer? Yes. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, talking about the, the mission of the gospel, says some plant, some water, but God gives the growth. Does our sowing matter? Yes. Does our watering matter? Yes. But at the end of the day, who makes the gospel grow? Not you, not me. God does. It's liberating, church, that we're called to participate in a mission that left to ourselves will be ineffective. But we don't, need to, we don't need to worry about our work being ineffective. Why? Because the one who works through our work will accomplish everything that he is destined to accomplish for the glory of God. That's good news. So let me just tell you this. We will give our best stab at this. We're going to give it the old college try. We're going to seek to faithfully reach the Tri-Cities and San Jose and beyond in Jesus' name. We want to proclaim the good news of Jesus. We want to love in Jesus' name. We want to open our homes and open our churches and show hospitality in the name who's welcomed us by his grace and for his glory. We want to see the, the, the brokenness that's out there in our city and do something about it in Jesus' name. And you know what? We will, we will just scratch the surface on what needs to be done here and 
there and all over the bay. But here's the good news. Our best efforts, even though they seem small, even though they may seem insignificant, even though they may seem impotent and that they will, they don't have the power to make that big of a difference. I got good news for you. If God works through our work, then man, everything that God plans to happen will happen. That's some good news. So who does God use as the means through which he accomplishes his unstoppable plan? He uses people who are gripped by the gospel, people who believe that God wants to use people like us, people who have faith and are convinced that God works through our work. Finally, and in conclusion, God uses people who believe that God's mission can't be stopped. Verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, there's an enemy who doesn't want us to gather and worship today. There's an enemy who doesn't want this church to succeed. There's an enemy who doesn't want the church in San Jose to be planted. There's an enemy who is opposed to our unity and love and faith community. He is described as a wily serpent a deceiver, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, one who from the very beginning has been opposed to God's plan, God's purpose, and God's people. And here in this single sentence, Jesus says that enemy may roar, that enemy may try to bite, that enemy may try to resist, but at the end of the day, that enemy shall not prevail. Because Jesus said, with all the strength of heaven, with all the strength and omnipotence of God himself, I will get it done. That is awesome. Jesus said, I will build my church. And come on, hell, bring all that you got. You can't stop me. I don't know how that falls on you, but it falls on me in a very encouraging way because let me just be honest, I like to win. In fact, I've been involved in competitive sports for most of my life or as long as my knees have let me. And I like to win. I've been playing pickup. I'm 46 years old and I've been playing pickup basketball for a long time. And when I go out there to play, I go out there to win. And so if you're not a very skilled basketball player and you're playing with me, let me just warn you, I will block your shot. You will not get sympathy from me on the basketball court. Sympathy from me in the counseling session? Absolutely. But not sympathy on the basketball court. Why? Because I like to win, win, win no matter what. Okay? But here's reality. I've been playing sports competitively for a very long time. And let me just tell you this. I don't always win. In fact, I've lost a lot. I've been on some really sorry teams and I've contributed to the sorriness. Okay? I can't always win. So when I hear Jesus say, I will build my church, I hear Jesus say, I'm going to win. And guess what? We're on his team. And so if Jesus wins, we win. If Jesus wins, 
Redeemer Church wins. If Jesus wins, the Bayseed Collective wins. If Jesus wins, his church will triumph. Now, here's something that's important. His purposes shall prevail, not all of ours. Again, sometimes in giving our best shot at doing what we think we need to do to make Jesus known, sometimes our initiatives, sometimes our plans, sometimes our creative ambitions don't succeed. Does that mean that Jesus has failed? No, it means that wasn't his plan. It wasn't his purpose for that to succeed. And so when we read these words, I will build my church, we should hear this. Everything that Christ intends to accomplish through his church will never fail. Jesus doesn't lose. He will build his church. He will get all of his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. His churches will be established And one day they'll all be gathered in the presence of God and nothing can stop it from happening. Jesus will build his church. And then again, here's the amazing reality. We are the means through which he accomplishes his unstoppable plan to build his church. Have you forgotten who you are? Do you realize you have a part to play? That Redeemer Church, although we are the size that we are, we have a significant contribution to make to Christ's unstoppable plan being accomplished in the Bay Area. And we should be asking the question, what kind of person, what kind of Christian, what spiritual shape do I need to be in to participate in this unstoppable mission? Well, be gripped by the gospel. Believe that God wants to use you. Have faith that he will work through your work and be convinced that whatever he wants to do through us, whatever he has decided to accomplish through us, cannot be stopped. Amen? By the grace of God, we are Christ's means in accomplishing his unstoppable plan to build his church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you have a plan to take the broken pieces of this world and put them back together in the name of Jesus. That there are people that you will save. There are people that you will transform. There are people that you will add to your church and will add to this church. And what you plan to do cannot be stopped. Help us this morning to be more humbly aware, more grateful than we've ever been, that we all play a part in this glorious, unstoppable mission. And we know that this mission and its accomplishment involves us, but it's not completely dependent upon us. Because Jesus is mighty. Because Jesus is strong. Because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, he is the one who has said, I will build my church. 
So although we're humbled and we're excited to play a part, a significant part in your unstoppable mission, we declare this morning with renewed faith and wonder that the reason it will be accomplished, the reason it is indeed unstoppable, is because your son Jesus, the crucified, risen, ascended, highly exalted one, is all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, all places, at all times, his entire being. And he will win. We pray in his name with thanksgiving. Amen.